turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 8. This is as far as we've uh, come in this study. I hope you're enjoying this study through Hebrews and finding it a blessing. Uh, personally, I am. Uh, I'm really enjoying just the focus on Jesus. Um, and I know, in a sense, every book of, of the Bible, every every part of Scripture is focused upon Jesus. Um, but really, the writer to these Hebrew believers was intent on getting their eyes off of tradition, off of religion, off of the things that they had done, on any concept that they could be right with God by their own efforts, and getting them focused purely upon Jesus alone. And we've seen this beautiful um, presentation so far, showing that Jesus is the express image of God, that he is God manifest in human form. And we've seen this declaration that Jesus is so much better than the angels. Now, of course, in, in Judaism, angels were revered, and quite rightly so. And we see a number of occasions in Scripture where angels stepped in and intervened and did incredible things. I was reading this week a, a book by um, Charles Wesley uh, about angels. And it was really interesting, some of the things that he was suggesting, purely from what we know from Scripture, the limited information we're given about their character, about um, the power, their strength, uh, and so on. And yet, again, Jesus is greater than any angel. And then we see this, this declaration that Jesus is greater than the law. Uh, again, we said earlier this morning, the law can only condemn us. It can't help us. It can't solve any problems. The, the, the writer goes on and makes the point that Jesus is, is greater than Abraham. He, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. You know, all these incredible characters who for any sincere Jew, they'd have held him in such high regard. And the writer here is saying, yeah, well, they are great. And it's not to belittle them in the way that God uses individuals. But Jesus is bigger and better and greater and stronger than all of them because of what he's accomplished, because of what he's demonstrated. And he's earned this position. And he sits right now at the right hand of the Father, which is you know, in itself just an incredible thing. You know, the, by the way, he's not sitting yet on his throne. He's sitting on his Father's throne. There's going to come a day when Jesus will return to this earth and will establish his kingdom here and he'll sit on his throne. That's yet to come. That throne that's promised by Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to Mary in uh, the beginning of Luke's gospel, that Jesus would sit on the throne of his father David. That hasn't happened yet. Now, either Gabriel got it wrong, which I don't think he did, or that's still something we can look forward to. And of course, when you compare it with Scripture, we look in the book of Daniel, for example, and it's so clear there that Jesus is going to come and rule. This, this, his kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. And everyone will be subject to him. And we, we were looking, in fact, allow me to, to interrupt myself even before we've begun. But it just, it's just so wonderful. We were looking in the book of Isaiah in our Bible study a few weeks ago. And the wording we have there is just so great, speaking of this kingdom that's coming. Um, if you want to turn to it, you can. I'm just going to go over the first couple of chapters of Isaiah, but I'm not going to read all of them, obviously. But just chapter 2, it really starts. It just says, it shall come to pass. In the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, 
and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall say, shall, shall go and say, Come you and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. How wonderful is that going to be? Then we get to go with these, these nations, well, we'll be there, but there'll be nations coming up to Jerusalem to come and listen to Jesus, to come and sit at a Bible study that Jesus himself is giving, and he'll be teaching and revealing things to us from his word, and we'll go, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, if I'd have known the Bible was that incredible, I'd have spent more time reading it. Again, if she teaches us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, we're told, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations. That's what we read about in Matthew 25, the beginning of that, the sheep and the goats, the judgment, depending on how they've treated Jesus' brethren. Jesus says, the way you've done it to the least of my brethren is the way you've done it to me. And speaking of Israel. But he will judge amongst the nations. And we're told, in verse 4, Isaiah 2, that, that uh, the nations... Uh, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, all the money that's spent today on war, on developing weapons of war, and, and there's this strong suggestion that even this coronavirus is uh, originally developed as a biological weapon that's just gone horribly wrong and got so out of control. All the, the, that investment of time, resource, and energy that won't be needed anymore. You beat the swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. The nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's what's coming. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns and rules and reigns. In the previous chapter, just to give us a run into to chapter 8, which we're going to be looking at this morning, back in verse 18, we have this incredible statement, and, and for a Jew to be receiving this, to be reading this and understanding the, the, the impact of this, verse 18 of chapter 7, it just says, For verily there is a disannulling of the commandment going before. That's saying that the law is being cancelled. A disannulling. It, it, it's, it's, it's losing its, its authority. It's losing its impact. It's losing its effect. It's being cancelled because of what Jesus has done. And he goes on, there's two reasons for that. It says, but going for the weakness, that's the first reason, because the law wasn't able to bring anybody to God. The law wasn't able to make you right with God. It wasn't able to make you righteous. In fact, the second point is, is an unprofitableness thereof. Because actually, all the law does is condemn you. The law just leaves you guilty. And this is exactly what Paul says in the letter to the Galatian Christians. He writes to them and says that you know the law was simply a the, the Greek word is pedagogue, it means a schoolmaster, a chaperone, someone that would look after a young child, bring them through their formative years to the point that they were able to step out into the world on their own, making sure that they'd learn and, and been equipped with everything they need. Well, the law is just like that. It's not like a chaperone. It brings us to Christ. It brings us to that place where we, we understand our own weakness, our own frailty, our own inability to get right with God. Verse 19 of chapter 7 goes on and says, For the Lord made nothing perfect. Verse 22 of chapter 7 goes on and it says, But 
or by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or covenant. That, that's where we get the phrase, the New Testament. It comes from this verse. Because this verse tells us that there is now a new contract that God has put in place. Now, the idea of a testament, we can often think of in terms of a will. And it is, in a sense, absolutely that. When, for a will to take effect, someone has to die. It has no power all the time someone's living. Well, of course, Christ died. And because of his death, we now have this new contract with God, a new covenant, a new agreement. Now, you'll probably be familiar from the Old Testament that there's a number of covenants that God makes with his people. There are some that are conditional. There's some of them that if they do this, then they'll receive this. Certainly, blessings and so on. God, in Deuteronomy 28, a great chapter of the Bible, says that if you obey me and walk with me and follow me, then you'll receive blessing. If you don't, they'll be cursing. There's conditions. But there's other covenants that God makes that are unconditional, such as the covenant that God makes with Abraham to give him this land. It's God's land, and he says, I'm going to give it to you and your descendants forever. And while God is ratifying this agreement effectively, this um, this animal is, is split in two, and the, 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 we see an example of this in Jeremiah, with this forming of the covenant, and you typically form a figure of eight walking around the pieces that are, have been separated, of this one animal that's, that's separated, but effectively saying that it's just as if this, this animal is joined together. This covenant is so solid it can't be broken. Abraham's asleep. What is going on? He has no part in it other than simply accepting it. Now that's an unconditional covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 we see another unconditional covenant that God makes with David for the, the kingdom. That throne will last forever. The throne of David that was being established that God was giving to him was going to go on for eternity. And of course we see Solomon, his son, comes to the throne and Solomon makes all sorts of mistakes and so on and that leads to the division of the kingdom and, and the history of the Old Testament as we have it. But that doesn't mean that God takes it away because it was an unconditional covenant. It wasn't based upon David's ability or Solomon's ability or the descendants to fulfill it. It was based upon God. As we said before a number of times, there were two things that had to be in place before the cross. One of them was the law and one of them was the kingdom or the monarchy. Both of those things had to be in place. And God uses the nation of Israel to bring both, both of those things to pass. He gives the law through Moses to the nation, and then the kingdom. Of course, Saul has this um, abortive effort to try and become king and rule of the nation, but because of his pride and because of his um, disobedience. And it's a lack of trust. You know, we, we just uh, Going back to what we said earlier in Hebrews chapter uh, 3, we spoke there in verse 11 about verse 11 and 12 and so on about them not entering into the promised land, the children of Israel. And it speaks about in verse 13 the deceitfulness of sin. And it was simply that, that sin was they hadn't trusted God. Let me just remind you what we said previously about this that God didn't stop them going into the promised land because of their lusting after flesh. You remember the situation with quail. God didn't stop them going into the promised land because some of them, Korah and his company, had risen up against Moses and challenged his authority. God didn't stop them going into the promised land because they built this golden calf and got into idolatry. All of those, for you and I, would be good enough reasons to say, that's it, you've blown it, that no more chances, that's it, enough. 
But God doesn't stop them going to the promised land because any of those things, the reason they're not allowed into the promised land is because they don't trust him. And that is such an affront to God. The God who had led them out of Egypt, led them through the the waters of the Red Sea, who dealt with the Egyptians, killed the firstborn, brought them through the wilderness, provided water for them, refed them out of the rock, and, and so many other incredible miracles. And then they go into the promised land, these, these 12 spies go in to spy out the land. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are the only ones that go, yeah, we, 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 we trust God. The rest of them go, no, there's big giants. We, we can't beat, beat them. We, we can't defeat these giants. Because they were looking at themselves. They didn't trust God after all that he'd done for them. And that's the reason that God says they can't go in. So this becomes a, a big trust issue. So again, with the kingdom, with Saul, it was a trust thing. He didn't trust God. Remember, when he really blows it, it's because the Philistines are massing around him. His, his own army starts to, to scatter, and he's worried. He thinks he's going he's, he's losing face in front of his own army. He's worried about that, his own image. But also worried of what's going to happen in this battle. And rather than waiting for Samuel to arrive and offer the sacrifice, he decides he's going to do it himself. If you remember, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He has no right to do that. And the law stated very clearly it had to be a Levite that would do that. And as a result of that, again, it's interesting how many times these things are related to blood sacrifice. And he didn't have the authority to do that. He makes a mockery of it. The whole Levitical priesthood and so on, what God had established. And because of that, God takes the kingdom away. But God does not and will not take the kingdom away from David. So getting back to that point, the monarchy had to be, or the the law had to be established and the monarchy had to be established. And in this chapter we're going to go into, we're going to see both of these things now echoed. That Jesus is both a king and a priest. This, that was a long introduction, wasn't it? Let's bow our hearts. Let's just uh, ask God's blessing now as we get into chapter 8. Father, we thank you so much for your word. There is so much to read and study. And Lord, the prospect that one day we'll be able to sit at your feet and listen to you teach us to reveal these things. Lord, that we will be absolutely amazed and blown away with the details, with the way you have designed all things. And that everything is working together for good, for those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Oh Lord, what a privilege. So we ask your blessing now as we study your word this morning. Just open our hearts, open our ears. Help us to see things spiritually, Lord, because we know that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we've been doing, I'm going to read to you chapter 8 through this uh, um, paraphrase translation of the Jewish New Testament. Uh, it's just written from a Jewish perspective, as I said already, that some of the things are not always 100%, but it's just helpful to see. So follow through in your Bibles as we go through a relatively short chapter, chapter 8, so we'll see how we get on. So... It says here, here is the whole point of what we have been saying. We do have such a high priest, as has been described. And he does sit at the right hand of God in heaven, of the throne in heaven. There he serves in the holy place, that is, in the true tent of meeting, the one erected not by human beings, but by Adonai. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this high priest, too, had to have something that he can offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there already are priests offering the gifts required by the Torah. But what they are serving is only a copy 
and a shadow of the heavenly original. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, God warned him, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. But now the work Yeshua has been given to do is far superior to theirs, just as the covenant he mediates is better. For this covenant has been given as Torah on the basis of better promises. Indeed, if the first covenant had not been given ground for fault finding, there would not have been no, there would have been no need for a second one. For God does not find fault with the people when he says, See, the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will establish over the house of Israel and over the house of Judah a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand and led them forth out of the land of Egypt, because they, for their part, did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I, for my part, stopped concerning myself with them, says Adonai, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will put my Torah, my law, in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, No, Adonai, for we will all know, all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will be merciful toward their wickedness, and remember their sins no more. By using the term new, He's made the first covenant old. And something being made old, something in the process of aging, is on its way to vanishing altogether. Okay, so let's uh, jump into the chapter. Let's go verse by verse through this and just uh, see how how the Lord leads us. So, first of all, it's a great chapter in a sense because we're given a summary of all the things we've looked at so far. We tried to give you a brief summary there a moment ago. But now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Okay, so the, the writer's saying, look, okay, let me, let me try and make this clear, just in case you're, you're missing it. Let's just, just recap. Let's explain again what we're trying to get across here. And it's very simply this, that we have... I mean, we just, just even that, we, you and I, believers, that it's possible for any human being to have what we're going to go on and look at, this relationship, this privilege, that we have such a high priest. And again, not a high priest that is like Aaron or any of the Levitical priests. We have a high priest that is already described to us is of the order of Melchizedek. This priest who was appointed directly by God, not a hereditary priesthood. Now, of course, Aaron was chosen by God, but all of his descendants were priests by default, in a sense. And we see the the problems with the likes of Eli's sons, who were very ungodly, the danger of a hereditary priesthood. But as Melchizedek, we saw last time we were looking, he, he... it says he doesn't have father or mother. What it means is it wasn't an hereditary priesthood. He didn't become a priest of Jerusalem because of any lineage. It was simply that God had put him into that role, that position. And so God is the one who's ordained and anointed Jesus to be our high priest. So we have such a high priest, just of a different order, of a different class altogether. And it's an eternal priesthood, by the way. And just Let me just recap. We talked about the monarchy and the kingdom. Those, sorry, the, um, the law and the kingdom. The law, of course, ultimately leads to the high priest who offers sacrifices for the people. 
And then, of course, the, the monarchy, the kingdom, with the king to rule over. Well, Jesus becomes priest and king. Now, Jesus' priesthood is eternal, and so is the monarchy. Both of those things that needed to be established, Jesus is the one who carries it through into eternity. Both of those things. There's a, there's a beautiful pattern with these things. Then we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Notice again, this isn't Jesus' throne, this is God the Father's throne. And Jesus is sat at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens. I mean, remember the disciples asked that question about, you know, when you come in your kingdom, can we sit on thrones? Can we be with you? Can we have that position of authority? Jesus, of course, makes that promise to those those disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not in heaven, that's on earth. That will be during the millennial reign of Christ. So many evidences of the reality of that yet to come. As we see the things that Jesus said, that promise would be nothing if, as so many churches sadly today believe, that those promises have been lost by Israel and somehow divulged by the church. How, how would that work? How does the church rule over the 12 tribes of Israel? It doesn't make any sense. No, God's word is very clear. There's this coming kingdom, and those disciples will be given that position of authority. But that's on earth. Jesus is sat at the right hand of God in heaven. You know, when we, we pray, Jesus said that we should pray our Father who art in heaven. Yeah, it's, it's a realm that we can't begin to fully comprehend or understand. You know, every individual in Scripture that has these glimpses or these moments of seeing what heaven is like is just utterly blown away. Isaiah, we, we're going to get there in our study next time. Um, as we get into Isaiah 6, and Isaiah is in this position where he's caught up to the throne uh, in, in whatever way, forming, however he, he was there, he's seeing these events take place and he's just overwhelmed. He recognizes, what is it? he says, woe is me, for I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his own sense of worthlessness. Yeah, there's an element, isn't there, sometimes, when we come to church, um, I mean, maybe, it's, maybe it's just me, but you know, you, you want to kind of get yourself right when you come to church because you know you're going to meet other Christians and you know, one of them might actually ask you how you're doing and, and, and you, you might have to respond. You know, the last thing you want to say is, oh, I'm really struggling with sin this week. You know, we, that's, no, we're not allowed to say that in church. So what we have to say is, no, I'm fine, thank you. So we try and get ourselves in that right state of, of, of mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's foolish in a sense because, again, we, we come back to grace. It's all about his grace, not about our ability. But the point is... We try and attain some sort of standard in our own hearts and minds. But the standard of heaven is so far above anything we could think of. God's righteousness is beyond even our understanding. I mean, we get a glimpse of it in the Beatitudes when when Jesus says that what we would think of as, as, as hatred in the heart, God considers it like murder. I mean, we would all kind of recoil at the thought of murder. There's a dreadful thing. But God says that's how he views hatred in our hearts to others. Yeah, and he likens lust, looking lustfully, to actually committing adultery. Yeah, that is kind of, or that's a, we wouldn't go that far, but looking with lust is not such a big thing. You know, to God it is. That's the standard that God has. It's so high. It's so far above. If I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66 verse 18 says, God will not hear. 
very guarded. If there's any element of that, God says, I can't listen to your prayer. That's why we're told that before we come to the throne in uh, 1 John, that we should confess our sins. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The point I'm trying to make here is that this high priest that we have is sat at the right hand of the majesty. He's not just in heaven, he's in the most exalted place. Of the most exalted place. The most incredible place that we could possibly imagine and conceive. And one day we'll get the privilege of being there. Those are believers, one day we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and we'll be taken back to that place. We'll get to cast our crowns before him. Again, I just, the mind just fails to come up with an adequate expression of how incredible that is going to be before the throne. So this high priest is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And this is a a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And now something is revealed to us that maybe we wouldn't have understood otherwise. That actually, when we're going to see it explained very clearly, that what Moses made in the wilderness was a model. It was a representation of what God already has in heaven. And everything in the heavenly sanctuary speaks of Jesus. Everything in that earthly model was also to speak of Jesus. We'll we'll talk, Lord willing, next time. As we go into chapter 9, there's a great comparison with the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. And that the heavenly tabernacle is so much greater and better. I mean, the real thing is always better than a model, isn't it? I've got a battleship, a home model kit. Um, which I haven't got very far with, I'll be honest, but I'm, I'm, one day I'm going to finish it, if the Lord tarries, we'll see. Um, it's of King George the, the Fifth, the battleship. Um, one of those that was involved in the whole episode of the Bismarck, I'm sure some of you know the history of it. Um, I, I love the film, I love the whole part of that history, and you know, again, the way the Lord preserved this nation during the war was incredible. But it's just, it, I want to build that model, but you know what, when that's built, it might look nice if I do a good job of it, but it's going to be nothing compared to what the real thing was like. Can you imagine actually getting the opportunity to see the real battleship at the time? Well, again, the comparison is that the model that we have, the tabernacle that Moses built, everything that went in the tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant, of course the, the incense altar, the, the table of showbread, the menorah, the lever, all these things, all these component parts, they all were models of and representing something that's already existing in heaven. And God gives Moses, when he's up on the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights, God is giving Moses detailed plans. Do you know a really fun thing? In Saudi Arabia where this mountain is, this Jabalil law is the mountain that Moses, when he was with, he went to the backside of the desert in Midian when he's looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And it's while he's there that he sees this bush that's burning and he goes and thinks, well, what's all this about? So he goes and has a look and God says, I want you to bring the people out of Israel and bring them to worship me on this mountain. Somehow, well, it's because Helena, um, the, uh, the mother of Constantine, decided that she was going to put a dot in the map and call it uh, Mount Sinai, which is now in the Sinai Peninsula. So, of course, the maps in the back of our Bibles tell us that that's Mount Sinai, which is nonsense. And then the critics say, well, there's no evidence of anybody dwelling there or living there or millions of people. Of course, there's not, because that wasn't the place they went. 
Now, the real Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. It's exactly where it is. Galatians tells us this Sinai in Arabia. Okay, so we know where it is. On top of this mountain, not only is it burnt black, okay, the, the top of the mountain is, is literally burnt. And it's not, it's, it's um, uh, not volcanic rock or anything like that. Ron Matson, who used to be pastor here, um, was speaking to Bob Cornuke. Bob Cornuke, some of you may have heard of. He was out there. He was on top of the mountain. He took some of the rock back, took it to America, took it to the laboratory. He said, can you tell me what this is? And they said, well, what is it? They said, well, you tell me what it is first. And they thought it was volcanic rock because obviously it's all burnt. And they said, well, it's just superheated granite. And they said, well, how on earth did this get this hot? We don't understand. Well, that's on the top of the mountain where Scripture tells us the Lord came down in a smoke and fire on top of the mountain. The people saw it and they were all afraid and so on. But you know what? At that place, and I've got a picture of it as well, there is on the rocks, there's carved into the rocks, writing and drawings, and one of the drawings is of a menorah. And I think that's fascinating. You know, and I don't know for sure, but I just wonder whether when Moses is getting this information, when he's on top of the mountain, the Lord's telling him, I want you to build this stuff. Because, I mean, the, the, the details about the tabernacle, it's the, there's more detail about the building of the tabernacle than any single subject in Scripture. Do you know that? If you read from Exodus, Exodus 25 through to the end of the, the book, it's all about the building of the tabernacle. And you've got all the details. I've just, just Mita and I in Mita's Bible, we've just been reading through with her, and we've just been going through these things, and we're trying to explain to her as we've gone through. But it's fascinating. It's one of those things, if you read it, it's just like, well, what does all this mean? But when you start to look at the details, everything speaks of Jesus in there. You know, I just wonder whether Moses, as God's kind of speaking all this stuff, is going, well, hang on, let me slow down, let me just draw this one. And there's this, this carving on top of the rock in Saudi Arabia to this day of a menorah. Why would there be a Jewish menorah in Saudi Arabia, of all places, on top of this very rock, this mountain that's there? But anyway, this is all a pattern. So verse 2 again, a minister of the sanctuary of the uh, true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man for every high priest is, of da- is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Okay, so there's a point that's being made here, simply that a priest, the, the, the nature of their role is to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what they do. That's why they're ordained. It says, wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, i.e. Jesus, should also have something to offer. You know, if Jesus is a priest... You can't just have the title, there's got to be some work that goes with it. So, of course, the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron and his descendants, they offer sacrifices. So what is it that Jesus offers? Verse 4, For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So on earth is already that job description, that role is already fulfilled. And it goes on in verse 5, who, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So speaking of those priests again, what they're doing is simply a model of what was already in heaven. But now we get this beautiful little spin round, saying that Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't get that job as high priest on earth because there's already a high priest. But guess what they're modeling? Him. The model that, 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 that they are acting out, the sacrifices that they're offering and so on, what is it, it's all pointing to Jesus Christ in the first place. Verse 4, for if you were on earth, you should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the Lord, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Okay, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. So God makes it very clear to Moses, look, I want you to be very specific. You can't go and make this stuff up. You can't go and amend it. 
This is very important. Do what you're told to do. Every detail matters. I love this about God. God is a God of detail. You know, that's why I think as Christians, whatever we do, we should always do our very best. Because our Creator does everything to the very highest standard. Solomon said, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I love that. And of course, in the New Testament, we're told that we should do all things as unto Christ. We should do it as if we're doing it for Jesus. And whatever you do, you know, if you're doing the washing up at home or some chore at home, you're not doing it for your husband, your wife, your spouse, your children. You're not doing it for any other reason than just it's an opportunity to worship God. Whatever we do, as I said last week, you know, when we get down here, we set the equipment up and everything else. You know, the worship service starts at nine o'clock when we get here. That's worship. You know, I don't, I don't set all my bits and pieces up and all the things and put the speakers up and plug things in. I don't do that for Pete, and Pete doesn't do it for me. We do it for Jesus. It's worship. You know, we, we've got into this mindset, haven't we, as Christians, that worship has to be, you know, somebody with a guitar and we sing some songs and that's worship. No, worship is an expression of our heart. Whatever you do can be an act of worship to him if you do it for him, and that's how we should do it. Now, God does things perfectly. And God is saying to, to, or God said to Moses, this bit that's being quoted here, you know, when you build the tabernacle, do it right. There's a lovely part of this where the people, as they realize that Moses is going to be doing this, and Moses explains to people what God has said to him, they all bring whatever gifts they can. And it gets to the point that Moses says, and the priest says to Moses, tell them to stop bringing, we've got more than enough. I love that. People's hearts just wanted to be involved in what God was doing. Just wanted to keep giving. Verse 6, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry. But how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. See, the promises of the law were great if you could keep the law without any sin, without any transgression. But of course we can't. Whereas the promises that we have in God, well, what are we told? That these are exceedingly great and precious promises. That's what we have. Exceedingly great and precious promises. It's established that the, the new covenant has been established on that. That we don't stand in our own righteousness. We stand in Christ's righteousness. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to him. That's what we've already read in Hebrews, isn't it? Verse 25 of the previous chapter. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. The verse that Amita shared with us this morning, again from Hebrews, you know, the, the Lord will not leave us or forsake us. These are the promises that the new covenant has been established on. The law could only condemn. The new covenant gives life. Verse 7, for if that covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. I mean, if the law was sufficient, then it wouldn't need a second. But of course, we're going to go on and see that there was, right from, from even the beginning of this covenant, the fact that the law, when it was given, we, we see it, the details are given, of course, in, in Exodus, the Ten Commandments and so on. 
But by the time we get to Leviticus, how does it start? By offering sacrifice for sin. So God acknowledged straight away that the law wasn't going to be able to lead us into a place of righteousness. Verse 7 again. For if the first covenant be faultless, there should be no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, so God acknowledges the problem of the law. The law is perfect. Don't get me wrong. The law is perfect. But we're not. That was the problem. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is now a quote from Jeremiah 31. This is great. Because God acknowledges that that first covenant wasn't sufficient to lead us into this place before him. But of course, the purpose of the law, we've already said, was only to lead us to Christ in the first place. That's the real purpose of the law. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I need to just interject here because people then say, well, but does this apply to the church then? Because, of course, the real danger and the problem of replacement theology is people take the promises that were made to Israel and they try and say, well, now it applies to the church. Well, yeah, it does apply to the church. How so? Well, because bear in mind that the church started off as a remnant or a group within the house of Israel, the house of Judah. The church started off as Jews. And what is it? what happens when we are born again? Well, we, we get grafted into that family. Romans 9, 10, and 11 make that very, very clear. Now, yes, the rest of the nation of Israel has rejected, but, you know, the church started off as this Jewish group, and we have been privileged to be grafted into that which God is doing. I was, I was watching a, a YouTube clip last night of Jonathan Kahn. Some of you may have heard of Jonathan Kahn. But it was, it was just fascinating, talking about the way every culture, every nation through history has either blessed, been blessed, or crumbled, depending on how they've treated Israel. And it went right back to the time of Egypt, and of course, you know, after Egypt's treatment of Israel, they, they crumbled. They never re- regained that status of world empire as they had. And then we see with the Assyrians, and, and the Assyrians were, were ruthless, and they took away and decimated the northern kingdom. And eventually, the Assyrians themselves are completely decimated. So much so that by the time we get to the time of Alexander the Great, he doesn't even know where the, the Assyrian Empire stood. I mean, not the geographically, the, the region, but the, the places. And it was much, much later. Was it Layard, Leonard, I think, um, the chap, that eventually uncovered Nineveh? It was back in the, the 1900s. You know, Assyria was destroyed, and of course Babylon. It's interesting with with Babylon because they, they took the the people from um, the, the the land, they took them to Babylon, and so on, and they left the land empty. And what happens as a result? Well, Babylon then itself is left empty. You know, it's still inhabited; it has been inhabited since, but it's just empty. Of course, then you see the same thing with the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire blessed Israel, didn't they? You know, it was a, it was a Persian king, Cyrus, who allowed Israel to go back to their land. And in some form, the Persian Empire has continued to this day. Of course, you think of the nation of Iran. By and large, that's the, the region of the Persian Empire. It's the only one of those groups of, of nations that really have survived in any form properly to this day. Greece, of course, again, we see the way they treated Israel and eventually they were decimated. Rome, interestingly, Rome is a very interesting case because they scattered Israel around the world. What happened to the Roman Empire? 
It got fragmented and scattered everywhere. In fact, most of the, 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 the languages that we have, certainly in the, the Western world, have come out of Rome, with Latin and all the languages, I mean, Spanish and French and English. You know, so much of our roots go back to, to Rome. You know, the Roman Empire got scattered around the world, effectively, just as they had done to Israel. The way that nations have treated Israel is the way that they themselves have been treated. England, Britain, this country, again, was blessed because it blessed Israel and then turned on Israel. After the time of the, the Balfour Declaration, this country's government became very hostile towards the Jews. And as a result, the empire upon once the sun used to never set is no longer an empire at all. And we could talk about Russia, we could talk about Germany, we could talk about all these other countries and the way they treated Israel and what's happened to them. We could talk about America and the way that they've been blessed because of the way they've treated Israel. But watch what happens. I mean, Obama was very kind of... Uh, uh, not supportive of Israel, it's fair to say. Of course, Donald Trump is hugely supportive of Israel. And that's why I'm sure America will see a time of blessing for a bit longer yet. But So, back to the verse 8. So the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. We've been grafted into this. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. So we know the history. We know what happened to Israel. We know that they were disobedient because they didn't keep those promises. Uh, and of course, again, Deuteronomy 28 is a great go-to chapter for that. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. Now, this applies to us because, as I say, as an extension of what the Lord has done with Israel, this covenant that was made with them, this new covenant, this new agreement. And, of course, for the nation, a lot of this is still yet to come. But for the church, we're already in the position of experiencing this. There will come a time that the nation of Israel, their eyes will be opened. They'll, they'll, the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in and they will come back to the Lord. And this will apply to them also. But it applies to us now. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. And God does that with us, does he not? Through his spirit. Have you ever been in a situation where you maybe thought you would do something or say something and the Holy Spirit has checked you and said, don't do it, don't say it. Or conversely, a situation where you're not sure whether you should say something. The Holy Spirit says, say it, speak out. The Lord puts his laws into our minds. We know what is right and what is wrong. Not because we know it, because in our heart, there's nothing good dwells, we're told. But because in our, our hearts, in our minds, the Lord puts this knowledge, this spiritual understanding through his spirit. And he says, and write them in our hearts. Oh, that's so important, isn't it? Because it's about that desire. The heart speaks about desire. The mind's about that intellectual capacity we have. But our hearts are so often where the problems occur. But God says he'll write his laws in our hearts. And we need that. You know, the, the, the biggest antidote to sin is Jesus. And I know it's an obvious statement, but the more you love Jesus, the more you focus upon him, the less you desire anything of this world. If you're struggling with sin in any area or any aspect of your life, just focus on Jesus. 
Spend more time reading his word. Spend more time praying. Spend more time filling your life with godly things. Listen to Christian music. Listen to worship music. Spend more time fellowshipping. Get to the meetings where you can. Because the more time you spend with God, the less appeal the world has. We don't want the things of the world. It's, I love the, the song. Maybe we should have done it this morning. Maybe we'll do it next week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the, the things of this earth just do, just grow dim. They lose their appeal to us. Because God does exactly what he says here he's going to do for the nation. He does it for the church. And God, this promise is being given here by the author of Hebrews to these Christians that the Lord will put his laws into their mind, write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. What a wonderful thing that is. That we've been chosen. You, you know that kind of situation at school, if you can remember that far back for me, it's a long time ago, but you know, when they were picking teams, maybe it was for, for you know, hockey or football or netball or whatever, you know, and they're picking teams and you know, they're picking everybody else and you're kind of still in the line. Eventually you get picked and you're just glad you got picked. You know, well, God has chosen you. You know, you're not left on the sidelines. You've been invited in. You've been brought into his family. He is your God and you are part of his family. No reason now to be ashamed. Because he loves you. Verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Now, of course, this is speaking of what is yet to come. There's going to come a time where the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and you won't need to go and tell people about Jesus because everybody's going to know that he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. For now, we have a mandate to go and Preach the gospel to all nations. The the actual the, the Greek word that's used there in Matthew effectively means all ethnic groups, not just nations geographically, but all ethnic groups. That's we, we're to preach the gospel to everyone. And by the way, that's not a suggestion that's given there at the end of Matthew's gospel. It's a command to go and preach the gospel. That's good news. We have this wonderful news that we can share this relationship when it's no longer about us because as we've just seen in verse 10 what a great verse that is that should give us so much comfort that it's not about your ability to walk righteously or walk holy or walk by faith it's not up to you it's not about you the lord does that work in you through his spirit all we have to do is accept and then Focus upon him. Set our eyes, our mind upon Jesus. Everyone is going to know the Lord from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Isn't that just a wonderful thing? You know, just imagine this morning, if we could put up on the screen here. And we could play back all of your thoughts. Let's just take for the last... Last week, shall we? Don't need to go any further than that. We could play back everything you've thought in your heart. And the whole congregation could sit here and watch. 
And I was about to press play, and you're sitting there really nervous, because you know full well that if that gets played, you're not going to come back next week, because you can't look to anywhere again. And, you know, to be honest, we probably wouldn't want you to come back next week if you saw it. But the moment we press play, there's just a white screen. And you're thinking, oh, there's a problem, that's great. No, it's not a problem, it's all been wiped clean. It's gone. There is no record of that. God has wiped it away. Are you grateful? Aren't you glad? For verse 12 of Hebrews 8, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And then to conclude verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first, sorry, in that he says a new covenant he has made the first old. So by talking about this new covenant, by default the old covenant becomes the old covenant because we now we have a new covenant. You follow? Now, that which decays and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. When something's old, it's getting ready to go. And that's the, the, the conclusion. Next week we will carry on, we'll look into chapter 9, and we'll see this comparison between the real tabernacle that is in heaven and that which was on the earth. And we'll have some wonderful fun just looking at some of those things. This is Bauhaus. Father, thank you so much for these things this morning. What a great reminder of what you have done, well, this promise, this, these, these better promises that you have given as a high priest of this new agreement, that you're no longer basing it upon our ability to keep the law, but it's all based upon Jesus Christ's righteousness, on his ability, on what he's accomplished. And the Lord, as we said this morning, you say that our sins you remember no more, that our iniquities have been washed away. And Lord, not just externally, but from our consciences as well that we can be completely free to serve you and to walk in newness of life. As so the Lord, by your grace, Lord, fill our hearts, fill our minds with a greater love of Jesus. May we, as we're going to go on and see in this wonderful book, may we look unto Jesus, knowing that he is the author and the finisher. He just started, but he's going to complete the work that he's started in us of our faith. We just thank you for these things. Keep us growing in grace and loving you more, Jesus, we pray through this week. We ask it, Jesus, in your precious, beautiful, wonderful name. Amen.